This week on the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast, we're talking about The Mountain and the Viper, episode eight of season four, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by Alex Graves. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, TV editor of Sound On Sight, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Mr. Ricky D, general editor, general editor. Hey, Kate. And this week joining us at uh, the podcast is Les Chappell of the AV Club. Les, Les, welcome back. Hello there. Thanks for having me. And now to to pull back the curtain a little bit here, uh, Les and I already recorded a podcast about this episode, uh, and then it got destroyed by the Skype gods because they they are cruel and unforgiving at times. So uh, I want to just quickly thank Cameron White, who, who came on to join us to discuss the episode uh, in the epi- in the podcast that unfortunately just got eaten and is not available. But that's Cameron White. He's a freelance writer and uh, he's on Twitter at Sable Jedi. Cameron, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll be able to have him on the podcast at a later date. But uh Les and I have already talked about this, but we haven't talked about it with Ricky, so that should help you know, keep a little bit of an air of uh, spontaneity here. Yes. We, we offer our sacrifices for the last podcast and remind ourselves what is dead may never die. <laughs> that, that sounds about right. So uh, kicking off the discussion of this episode, uh, as we always say on the Sound of State Game of Thrones podcast, there'll be no spoilers from the book. I've read the book. Les, you have read some of the books. Where are you at in the books? Uh, I have read three and a half of the books. I'm halfway through A Feast for Crows. So I've read everything that's already happened in the series and a few other things, but I don't know too much of the stuff that's coming ahead. And Ricky, if you'd remind our listeners again uh, where you're at with the books. I am a non-book reader. Um, I just don't want to read the books until at least season four is done. Yep, and so that's where we're at with the books. No book spoilers, no TV show spoilers. Uh, anything that has happened on the TV show is fair game, both the TV version and the book version. And with all that uh, caveating out of the way, let's talk about this episode, and let's take a similar approach to the episode itself. We will get to the mountain and the viper and that awesome climactic conclusion to this episode let's start out with everything else that happened uh, on game of thrones this week because for me this is one of the most consistent episodes of the season i really dug everything we got before we even got to the red keep uh ricky how did that how did that uh first half of the episode work for you well i think the entire episode is fantastic i think it's the best written episode of the season so far uh and that's saying a lot because we've had some amazing episodes but yeah it's good from start to finish i mean you walk in, or I guess you sit down and wait for the episode to start, and you're just anticipating the fight between the Mountain and the Viper. But you just, at least, at least for me, because I'm I'm a non-book reader, I just did not expect the fantastic sequences that we get. Starting with the sequence in Molestown, which I think is overlooked, like not a lot of people are talking about, it, and I think the direction and the cinematography in that sequence is fantastic. I mean, Alex Graves is um, my favorite director of Game of Thrones. Uh, I think he's done some of the best episodes. And I think he and his cinematographer do, like, I mean, 
it's magic. Like they create these exciting action set pieces with fantastic lighting. I love the score and the music uh, in the background. It just really sets the mood. And there are some beautiful shots. Like there's a reflection in the well of a man slitting another man's throat. And there's this beautiful shot of Ygritte staring at, um, at Gilly. And she basically decides to spare her life. And you just see the blood dripping from the ceiling. So, I mean, just that opening sequence alone was enough enough to get me excited without even having the mountain versus the viper. So uh, loads of gore, atmospheric score, great scenery, great way to start off the, uh, what I think is one of the best episodes of the series yet. <laughs> yeah, I will entirely agree with you on everything you just said. In fact, both of those moments you cited were exactly the moments I was prepared to cite. Uh, it's sort of interesting that I... I've sort of felt like we haven't gotten enough of the wildlings this season or really much of or enough of what's been going on beyond the wall ever since uh, Jon Snow went back to the went back to Castle Black and the wildlings joined up with their cannibal friends. I mean, there's been plenty there's been plenty of scenes with both, but I don't feel that this season it's been as consistent because they've had to split those two narratives this scene though this scene though was as you say incredibly fantastically shot it reminded us of just how brutal the wildlings are and how and it reminded us of what a character Ygritte is that moment where she just looks at the child at Gilly and her child after waiting to stay after having run her spear through that loudmouth prostitute and she just sort of waits for a second and everyone's hearts in their mouth and then she just puts her finger to her lips and walks away such a powerful moment and such a beautiful moment for that character and it was just it reminded you of so much of why i of the things that i liked about the wildling stories from season three well and the reason it's so effective is that you believe that Igrid would kill a basically defenseless woman and her baby. You believe that that is a thing that could happen. And I really appreciate that the show is not pulling their punches with the wildlings, but specifically with the Greek, because we like her. And then we still see her just killing defenseless people this week. And it's such a great way to, to, to raise the stakes for what's coming uh, as they approach the wall, as they approach Castle Black, which, you know, is something that they've been, the show has been talking about all season. But I thought this was a great way to, to again, remind us that if it, there isn't some amazing happy ending that at least is foreseeable right now. Because Igrit <laughs> and the Wildlings are an unstoppable, un, unrelenting force headed for for the wall and headed for Castle Black, where you have the men of the Night's Watch who are also unwilling to negotiate. Like the wildlings are not suiting, you know, seeking, you know, free uh, haven. They're not trying to just get beyond, you know, on the other side of the wall because they know about the walkers and everything. They are slaughtering people so that they can get across. And uh, I really appreciate the the just black and white nature of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, though I will say, if anyone who's watched the show up to this point still thinks a happy ending is going to come, I would deeply like to know what show they're watching instead. Or or what kind of brownies they're eating with them to put them in such a happy, optimistic mode. <laughs> but it's funny you say that because I wrote that in, in my review. I mean, we won't talk about the climax just yet, but when we get to the end of the episode, I'm like, any hope that I've had that this will end on a happy note and that the good guys might actually win was demolished in this episode. Yeah, this one even more so than say 
I don't know if even more so than the Reigns of Castamere, because the Reigns of Castamere totally put a stake in everyone's happiness. But this episode, uh, so much of it was reminding us of just how brutal life is in this world and just how many sacrifices you have to make to actually get anywhere in this world. And even at that point, you make – it's that quote of this – some of it's that quote that Bron had last season, last episode when he was justifying why he wouldn't fight the mountain. One One false step – and I'm dead. Well, before we get to the mountain, and we will, gentle listeners, we will get there. Trust me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In fact, that was one. That was one thing that sort of astonished me about this episode because you hear in a, that an episode's going to be called "The Mountain and the Viper," and especially after how all season has built up, how bad, how much we've come to like the Viper, you're really looking forward to that moment. But I was just amazed by how much happened in this episode all over uh all over westeros and across the sea there was action in in marine there was action at the wall there was action at mokalin there was action at the erie there was just a lot that happened this episode and like you said at the top so much of it was so satisfying before we move on i'd like to the erie is where i want to go next but uh any thoughts on the wall as we're discussing the wildlings, I mean, it was a nice scene. Again, I thought it was a nice reminder of the stakes of what is coming uh, for the Night's Watch and, and John in particular. Ricky, any thoughts on on your boy Jon Snow? Uh, well, I always enjoy watching Jon Snow, but I think what makes this episode so special in my eyes is it's episode eight, but it feels like a season finale because it feels like just about every storyline has come to an end and most characters are starting afresh. Like take for instance, Sansa. Now I've not, I've not been the biggest fan of Sansa since the very start. And one of the reasons why I'm frustrated with the character is because I've been waiting for her to kind of stand up, play this cruel game that everybody else plays, protect herself, stand up for herself and the people she loves and not just be a victim. And um, we got it. We got it this week. I mean, I mean, <laughs> How fun is it to watch Sophie Turner play Sansa Stark, who her herself is also acting out a role in this episode? Um, it's just so refreshing to see her take a page out of Lord Baelish's book and learn the art of manipulation. And that, to me, is the standout performance of this episode. It might not be the highlight of the episode, but after suffering for so long, she's finally in a position to take control. And that is what I've been waiting for. And so remember way back, Kate, like when I started podcasting, I was like, well, one of the reasons why I do not like Sansa is because she was the princess who was just in love with King Joffrey only because King Joffrey at that point in time was a prince. You know, she was so superficial and she was like, I know like she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth and she's kind of like naive and she is a child, but she she was completely different to Arya, a character that I love. And now she's really, really become something completely different. I mean, it's a powerhouse performance. So, I mean, if this episode can get me to like a character who I've been frustrated with for like three seasons, that's a good thing. She was terrified that Lord Baelish didn't love her anymore, that he would abandon her for a younger woman. And then one day she saw him kiss me I do sense. it was a peck on the cheek lord royce nothing more lord baelish is my uncle now in truth by marriage he's always been so kind to me i was so happy to be here to be free all because of him but my aunt 
turned on me. She cursed me, called me a whore, promised to throw me through the moon door. When Lockbelish tried to calm her, she struck him. She said she didn't want to live anymore. She stood on the edge of that moon door. He tried to reason with her, promised her she was the only one he had ever loved. But she stepped through those doors and she was... It's not your fault, sweet girl. Uh, just I just want to quickly go uh, quickly have one moment on the wall before we move fully into Sansa. Yeah, I do agree that that plot right now, a lot of what we saw in there is all of the wall is sort of calm before the storm. Uh, the moment before Mance Raider's army of 100,000 men to their 105 slash 102 at this point and smashes against that wall. And we have to expect that something like that is coming. But so much of the stuff at the wall since they got back from Craster's Keep does feel like we're waiting for that moment and that sense of doom i really enjoyed in those scenes particularly when uh one of the knights watch i think maybe it was pip comments that well whoever's whoever's left after they kill us all just make sure to burn us so we don't come back so there's a lot of doom and gloom going on there and i do hope that, that gets some very good resolution going forward sansa stark at the eerie was amazing this episode uh the I thought the moment, the scene where she's talking to the Lords of the Vale and she gives and she tells the story. I mean, it's fantastic. It reminded me a lot of the various testimony given at Tyrion's trial, where 90% of what she said was true. Her torment from Joffrey, from Cersei, the fact that she was married off to Tyrion as little more than chattel. That's all true, but the way she phrases it makes it sound more sympathetic to Littlefinger. And everything that she said about uh, what her aunt, how her aunt treated her and how her aunt felt about her and Littlefinger, that was also true. All of it was true up until the point where she says that Lysa threw herself out the window. And I just thought it was so fantastic to just see that, to see that grand framework of truth building up to this massive lie. It was a very memorable and dramatic moment, played very well by Sophie Turner. Also, in you know reaction from Aiden Gillen, I, I thought that worked very well as well. And also, just even the 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 staging of it, where you know the 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 setup of the room. So whenever we we look at Sansa, we're all, we're also either looking at the three like judges from of of the the Lords of the Eerie, or we're also seeing behind her uh, Littlefinger. She's never really, you know, unless it's an like extreme close-up, she's not really in the frame by herself. And that, at least for me, it reminds the viewer that she is still very much has to be on her guard. She is not safe. She is not, you know, in a situation where she can truly be alone and feel secure. And uh, it just works. It works so well. So there's a big question floating around what's going on with Sansa. I mean, my sort of the question is how much of what she's doing is her agency and how much of that is just her doing exactly what Littlefinger was hoping she would do. Because there is that, the scene where he goes at, to talk to her in her room after the trial. And he asks, why did you, why did you do this? You could have sold me out. And it's sort of a comes to the better, the devil, you know, than the better you don't. And she's like, I know what you want. Do you? And it's just, a, that's just a really interesting question to ask because the thing about dealing with Littlefinger is 
you never know exactly how much you're doing is what you want to do or how much he wants you to do and how much control he has. He's sort of the Hannibal Lecter of Westeros in that regard, minus the people eating, which we'll leave to the wildlings. But I think that Sansa doesn't take the bait, and I think that's what I love about her in this episode. I think that she's got the upper hand, and I think that she knows that Peter actually is sort of infatuated with her. I mean, I'm sure she reminds him of her mom when she was younger. They might have looked alike. And uh, I think, you know, like when she walks down and she's wearing that gown, he looks at her and, you know, he's looking at her because he thinks she's beautiful. And I think, you know, he sort of has a thing for Sansa. And I think Sansa is going to play it and she's going to play him. I, I see her having the upper hand at the end of that sequence. I wouldn't say she, he has a thing for Sansa. I'd say he has a thing uh, for his power and ability to control her and attain what he was not able to attain with Kat. I don't think he cares about her as a person really at, at all, though I'm, he's probably impressed with her from this week. I don't think Littlefinger cares about anybody as people other than himself. Well, no, but if he cares about someone, it's because he sees that someone benefiting like himself like he sees something in that person that can help him succeed and be in succeeding and becoming like i don't know the most powerful man in westeros so i mean he is interested in sansa for that reason i'm not saying it's the same way you know a normal person would sort of like be interested <laughs> in somebody but i mean he he is peter baelish he's like the most conniving like i don't know backstabbing character on on, on this tv series so um i don't know i just think that she's in a good spot right now i mean you know yeah. sort of i mean she's still trap like you say like even just the framing like the way the cinematographer frames the shots it's like we're constantly reminded that even though she's technically free she is still trapped like she's trapped between these people and uh, she has to be clever in each and every single one of her words she has to choose wisely and and you know choose wisely as to what her next step will be but i think for the first time she is taking control and i think she has like a clear vision of what she needs to do in order to survive yeah and then of course there's that wonderful moment where she comes down the steps of the area and i mean i said this on twitter she is walking down in full-bore maleficent mode she's got the black dress with the with the feathered epaulettes and she just looks completely different from how we've ever seen her before as if she's totally embracing whatever this new role of hers is and that look on uh, aiden gillen's face as she comes down I can't tell if he's proud, if he's lustful, if he's taken aback, or some combination of the three. But either way, it's definitely certain that whatever version of Sansa this is now, this is not the Sansa who we've seen in the past. And that also sort of, and, and I'm sure there might be a couple more thoughts about Sansa, but that raises a very good question. Of the best of the best Stark daughter moments this season, this episode, sorry. Which one is which one is your favorite? Sansa coming down the stairs in her Maleficent dress or Arya bursting into laughter? Well, no, Arya bursting into laughter. Yeah, Arya laughing. <laughs> I think I think the show needs that sort of levity, and I think I mean, look, I I prefer Arya over Sansa any day, and just also the Hound's reaction to Arya laughing that was just fantastic, and <laughs> I mean, I think that was more surprising than the climax, to be totally honest, and I think also it's. You know, as funny as it is, and I mean, I was laughing alongside Arya, it's also somewhat troubling to think that she's sort of slowly losing her mind to some degree. I mean, she's becoming really dark. She's becoming a very dark character, and it worries me. And um, I mean, I do like Arya, but I'm not entirely sure 
what's going to happen to her in, in the upcoming season. I just see her, you know, becoming like the hound and, and yeah. not showing any mercy. And I mean, we saw it, was it last week when she just straight up killed, um, what's his face? I forget his name, but you know, she killed Rorge, the guy. Rorge, I think it was. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think my, my my friend Julie Hammerly uh, wrote up a bit of a winners and losers post about Game of Thrones, and she said it best about Arya. Arya had, oh, pardon my French, Arya has zero fucks to give at this point. This is now the third or fourth time that it's looked like she was going to be saved and reunited with a member of her family, and then literally within sight of the building where her family is, that hope is just snatched away from her. At that point, she has absolutely no other reaction left to her other than to scream and wail. And she is not a screamer and or a wailer. She's just it's so absurdly tragicomic that she has to laugh at it. And again, so many points to Maisie Williams for how she delivered that laughter. And again, full also, as you said, Ricky, full points to Roy McCann for how dumbfounded he looked at <laughs> seeing yet another moment where he thought he was going to get his reward and it's just yanked away from him. My favorite part of that also was just like the the pause, because like you, Ricky, I was laughing, too. Uh, so I so to get the reaction. I just kind of start chuckling to myself and then she starts laughing and that pushed it over the edge for me <laughs> you got to keep it you know also remember that this is a scene that starts out with her talking about how the only thing that makes her happy is killing right now so yeah Arya's come a long way down a dark path and uh there's you know there, there's still more tragedy theoretically they could have uh, Sansa die before her eyes right there's still more horrible things that could happen so who knows if this is as dark as it gets but the fact that she's starting to laugh I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but it's certainly an entertaining thing but yes. I mean the fact that Game of Thrones has possibly the funniest scene in any television show this week is saying a lot um, but now I'm assuming she's not actually going to reunite with Sansa. I mean, she's going to turn around along with the Hound and are going to walk away. Well, she doesn't know Sansa's there, and Sansa doesn't know she's there. Right. Yeah. That. I, yeah. That. That's sort of the interesting quest. <laughs> that's an interesting question that I was. In, I was surprised we didn't see the answer to. If the guard at the Vale had said that no, uh, but Peter Baelish is there, would would the Hound think he could still cash in with Littlefinger? But that's why I feel like this episode really feels like a season finale because it's like the Hound's quest is over. He failed. He didn't get there in time. She's most likely not going to enter and she's not going to be reunited with Sansa. Even Sansa's storyline with Peter Baelish, it feels like they're it's ended now. They're starting a, a new like route, like a new path. They're, they're going on a new direction. Like this whole episode just felt like a season finale. And also because it's just so well written, well directed, well acted and so on and so forth. Family, honor, all that horse shit. It's all you lords and ladies ever talk about. I'm not a lady. Who would pass the bloody gate? The bloody hound, Sander Clegane. And his... traveling companion, Arya Stark, niece of your lady Lysa Arryn. Then I offer my condolences. Lady Arryn died. Three days ago.
well, this this episode had these, you know, these darker moments, these some kind of very triumphant moments, maybe, but all kind of all surrounded in negativity. So in uh, Sansa becoming this more engaged, but also therefore less innocent, uh, you know, participant in, in all the in, in the Game of Thrones and all the politics. We have Arya joking about how she or talking about how she likes killing people and that makes her happy and now just laughing about the destruction in her life but one character does get a happy scene of course that character is ramsey bolton uh so any thoughts formerly ramsey snow but thanks to a royal pardon now fully able to carry on the name and traditions of his family (laughs) woohoo any thoughts on 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 ramsey this week um, I don't think there's much to talk about, not with him. I actually kind of just wanted to talk about the scenes revolving around Danny and Jorah. Let's get there. I uh, I just thought it was heartbreaking. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing about Game of Thrones is like we can talk about the climax and we're you know teasing our listeners about us getting to talking about the climax, but I mean, there's a lot more to talk about with each and every single scene that comes before the climax. And I mean, when you think about Danny and all of the scenes that we've had revolving around her this season, this is, I think, the most shattering thing that's happened to her and her storyline in quite a while. I mean, I can't remember what was as heartbreaking as this. Like, that revolved around her, the character, like something that actually personally hit, hit her hard. Not aside from, like, you know, Drogo. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I would say, yeah, I would say probably the most heartbreaking. Uh, Daenerys moment was the moment in the House of the Undying when she saw the image of Drogo and her unborn child. Yeah, but, but yeah, uh, since then that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah, since then she's sort of been running rampshot across the various slavers beyond the great beyond the Great Sea, uh, taking cities, nailing people up, having the occasional boring bit of <laughs> boring bit of court dra- of uh, having to play queen, but otherwise she's been. Everything's been coming up Daenerys. It's been yeah. lots of, of walking and then fighting off screen. Yeah. Ever since she got to stop yelling, where are my dragons? She's been, life has been good for Daenerys Targaryen. If not particularly memorable until she started actually ruling, at least for me. So this, the, the scene was a very powerful one. Like you guys both said, the, her, her reaction, you know, whenever somebody gets really mad and then they get quiet. That's that's when you know to be you know to be concerned, and we get that here with Amelia Clark's performance. It's a really uh, significant one, and and what I particularly appreciate about that moment is that, at least for me, there's this sense if she, if, if he had just freaking told her back when he switched allegiances, if he had just come clean, it probably would have been fine, but he doesn't. It, it, you know, Sir, Sir um, Barrison Selmy finds out and tells her, and because it's not from him, and because it's not when he did fully go get on the Daenerys train, it's too late. It's another one of these just tragic timings. Well, it's not tragic timing. It's just he should have well, done it. <laughs> a foolish choice, I guess. Foolish choice, yeah. But that's the thing about the show is that, you know, with our swordplay and action and magic and giants and direwolves and dragons, but the best scenes are always focused around two people talking. And this is a perfect example. Even her scenes last week were fantastic. And as opposed to her showing up at a gate and delivering the Danny speech and free to slaves – 
it's it's more intimate and it's more personal and the conversations and the dialogue are so well written and so perfectly delivered by the actors like this is what i want to see more of and so yeah once again i like what they are doing with danny not just danny but even the characters that surround her it just seems like they're they are building even like the supporting cast uh around danny um for example what is his name again um gray worm graham yeah uh We'll get yeah. Uh, I don't care about Grey Worm. Well, uh, well the thing is, honest. neither do I. But the thing is, he is a character in the show, and I I don't know where it's headed. Like I haven't read the books, but I'm hoping if they're giving this character valuable screen time, then he's gonna have something to do in the near future, something more important than just being in the background. And I just feel like they're trying to give this character justice and trying to develop at least a relationship with him and somebody else, but. Uh, I mean, it's the weakest aspect and element of this episode. It's still the most interesting thing we've we've had for this character so far. You I guys think. are both crazy. The scenes were awesome and fantastic, and in no way the weakest part of of the episode. I would give that to Ramsey. Okay, right. Okay, so sorry. Second. Okay, I say. Uh, you see, I would. T- I would dismiss. I would. I disagree with that. I know the the problem that I have with the Grey Worm and Misandre scenes is, yes, I I can sort of see what they're going for in these scenes, and I do feel that both the actors are doing uh, well with the material that they're given. But the problem is that, in the grand scheme of everything that's going on right now, Tyrion's trial, Mance Raider's army approaching the Wall, Littlefinger's plan to burn down all of Westeros to be king of the ashes or whatever he has planned, Stannis Mippin with the Iron Bank. I have absolutely no idea why in this grand scheme I'm supposed to care about the relationship between the translator and the guard who maybe he had, who do you wonder are his pillar is his pillar gone or his stones gone, etc. etc. It just doesn't matter to me against everything else that's going on in this world. Oh, I care so much less about anything having to do with Stannis. It's just not even close. Yeah, but Stannis is in this episode. Like, I'm not knocking the scenes. I don't think they're terrible. I'm just saying it's the second weakest element of this episode. Like, do you think it's stronger than, say, the Tyrion Jamie scenes, which we haven't talked about yet, or Arya and Sansa? I mean, for me, we'll get there, but the the stuff we give with Tyrion is the highlight of the episode for me. Right. But I just, I wouldn't, I guess I just wouldn't phrase it as weakest part of the episode because I don't think it's weak at all. So I would just say that it is a, another consistent, strong part of, of the episode. Okay. I, yeah, so I would probably say, yeah, weakest is not... I will just say it's the thing about in the episode I care about the least. Like, even the Ram, even the Ramsey stuff, I care about that because it's part of the power structure of the North, especially when you see at the very end of those scenes that the army of the Dreadfort is marching to retake Winterfell and basically settle themselves there. It just I care about that in the grand structure of the show, whereas this is a very smaller, more human element of the show, which is certainly important on its own merits. I just don't care. I guess I, I, guess I can see what you're saying, but it's just... We we need to build up each of the the worlds, each of these these central figures that the show is very interested in following, and one of those is Danny, and especially with Jorah, uh, seemingly out of the picture at least for now, that leaves uh, <laughs> that leaves Barristan Selmy, that leaves Grey Worm, that leaves Missandei, and that leaves uh, Dario Naharis whenever he comes back. Yeah, Dario Naharis, who his timing is in it 
timing is interesting because he, you know that that character would love to leap on this absence left in the Queen's Guard, except he's off right now subjugating Yun Kai again on Daenerys' yeah. half for last week. Yes, but but it, so that's why it's this scene is so important as far as I'm concerned because it is it is building up the world around Daenerys. So it's not just Daenerys marching, conquering stuff, ooh, pretty dragons. It's these are the people that she surrounds herself with. This is a show that cares very much not just about the people in power, but about who they choose to surround themselves with. And that's why this scene is important as far as I'm concerned. Right, but that's what I just said previously. It's, it, it, it is building the characters around there, and that's you know why I do like it. I just, I mean, maybe the wording's wrong. Right. Well, maybe the wording's wrong. Maybe I shouldn't use the weakest scene. I mean, it's still a good scene. I'm just saying it's you know when I think back on this episode, I'm really not going to remember this scene. I'm going to remember like Arya, Sansa, Tyrion, Jamie, the White Bird, the Mountain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, I mean, it's touching and sweet, like the exchange between him. And Missandei, Missandei, no, 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 that's Melisandre, Missandei, so yeah, who, which I have to ask, why is the queen doing her doing her translator's hair? I thought that was such a nice little beat. I love that they included that. It, it's such a shift in the Daenerys that we see in the book, and we'll mention, unless as the book readers, this Grey Worm Missandei stuff is not in the book. This is a creation. Uh, and I'm I'm really glad that they're exploring these two characters. But yeah, I, I actually noted and was very happy about that detail because it shows us that she cares about Miss and I as a person, and not just as, you know she's not just somebody to stand around and you know take orders and work for her. But she's a person that da- Daenerys has a per you know this close connection with. Danny's a really good leader. I mean, she's young. We have to remember she's young. She's going to make mistakes. I'm a little worried. You know, now that she doesn't have Jorah around to sort of advise her, she's probably going to make even bigger mistakes from now on. Um, I think, I mean, I understand why she feels betrayed, but I also think it's not exactly a wise move on her part to send them away. At the same time, she also didn't, you know, execute him, which I guess she could have done. So she clearly cares about him, but I think she just felt like she had to send him away. Like, it's kind of, I think she thinks that that's what she has to do as a leader because she does feel betrayed and she is hurt. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's a wise move. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I definitely agree that she fit the betray all the betrayal aspects. And I will say that sequence is one of the most devastating ones that I've seen on Game of Thrones, because I mean, we talk so much about the various pairings on the show that work so well. The pairing of Daenerys Targaryen and Ser Jorah Mormont is at this point, I believe the oldest pairing on the show because he pledged his service to her and her brother in the pilot episode, and he's been by her side. I mean, side. I mean, yes, he was sort of intro. He looked like he may betray her in the first season, which is what caused all these problems. And he turns around, but those two characters have been sharing the majority of their scenes together for almost four seasons now. And that just makes the fact that it's broken all the more devastating. And you can totally see both of the both uh, Amelia Clark and Ian Glenn selling the hell out of the fact that this partnership, alliance, whatever you want to call it, between these two characters is going to end. And you know, you can see on Jorah's face, he he entirely believes her when she says that she'll have his head thrown into the Slaver's Bay. And you can see on her face, she means it. It's just a 
heartbreaking. It's just a heartbreaking moment when he finally turns his back and walks away. I absolutely agree. And, you know, the thing with this, yes, it is also a move she needs to make. It's a, it's interesting to compare this decision with Rob's decision that he faced about the, the Karstarks, uh, who, you know, han- handling that uh, disorder in, in ranks, in his ranks. And it's a different approach that she takes here. But um, it's important to keep in mind, this is a character who has been used as a pawn by every significant figure in her life, except for, you know, until this point, except for uh, um, Drogo at after a while after he started caring about her and even drogo had the history that regardless of what affection transpired between the two he bought her yeah and and then jora until until this moment so that that sense of betrayal and that you know that i was a means to an end you were just using me like all these other people have used me in my entire life it's it's a deeply cutting betrayal so yes it is also a very politic move very considered move and an important one she needs to make to maintain her her structure of her leadership and and her her king's guard and everything and the queen's guard that is but it's also a highly personal decision okay so can we finally talk about Tyrion because that sequence was unbelievable it's sort of just amazing that I've seen some people complaining that Peter Dinklage hasn't had that P- Tyrion and Peter Dinklage haven't had enough to do this season because he's been sort of just in a cell away from the action. But what? by God, Peter Dinklage has had so many, for lack of a better word, Emmy worthy moments. His entire speech to the to to the entire assembled court his monologue his discussion with Bronn, his discussion with Podrick, any of his scenes with Jamie and this one is just so masterful and i just i have to ask would you say that this is the best of the Tyrion monologues we've gotten this season yes i know i know kay was gonna say yes because we talked about it before recording um i don't know for me it's hard i was telling kate before we started recording that I could have used Tyrion in the cell for the entire scene uh, se- season because, I mean, I think my three, if not four, favorite moments of the season all revolve around Tyrion in the cell talking to people. Uh, yeah. Last week, there was three fantastic sequences. This week, it was unbelievable. When he starts talking about his younger cousin who keeps smashing the Beatles, I mean, that's the question that's posed right before the climax. And I'm not entirely sure if I understand the metaphor or what it means. I, I was trying to... I actually have to go back and watch the episode again, but um, I mean, maybe you guys can can chime in here. I mean, I guess from my understanding, he's basically saying that some men just basically have to smash. Well, despite the fact that some people could be cunning and rich and smart and handsome, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to win at the end of the day. Or is he trying to say that the cost of life in the world of Game of Thrones is basically cheap or is it a bit of both or is it just is there, Frank- is there an answer? Mm-hmm. Frankly, I, I the, what I took from that monologue of his, which was, again, just sensational, what I took from that was more his sort of just wistful thinking about how, to me, this was a puzzle in my youth that I tried to unravel. I tried so hard to figure out what was going on. And then, of course, he got kicked in the chest by a mule and I never got the answer. But I kept thinking about that. 
and now the and the unspoken part is and now I'm about to face a trial by combat where I have very good odds of dying afterwards and yet I still haven't answered this question. I just saw that as just far more of just sort of Tyrion's wistful thoughts about just life and all the unanswered questions that he is of so many of 99% of the characters on Game of Thrones the only ones smart enough to think about. Well, and it's also this is it's a stand-in for violence and and the the powerful just crushing the the weak or the unknowing you know with no regard or thought there's no there's no malice in it there's no joy in it it is senseless violence that is completely unnecessary and there isn't there isn't a reason and this is their world so just as just as the cousin is just smashing beetles because look at the violence we have in this world that's surrounding these people. How many, yes, is it better if there's a motivation, a political motivation and maneuvering for the betterment of your house? This is all, you know, the, the, the kind of violence that each of our main leads for the most part engages in and endorses because that's human nature or because that's how the world works. There isn't a good reason and so this, you know, for me, it's, it's yes, there's wistful remembrance, but it's much more about human nature. And when we get to this climax, when we, and we see uh, the mountain crush, smush uh, Oberyn's head, not dissimilar to that bug. Just smashing like so many beetles. It's, it's, it's the, that same recurring theme. And that's why this was so powerful to me. I thought it was just, and, and the fact that Jamie doesn't get it too. He's like, there are but people die. It's like, okay, but you don't understand that he is also talking about people. He's also talking about every element of their world. This, this guy, this kid did not have, there's no reason to smash beetles. He could do anything else, but he's a simple creature, a simple person. And he gets pleasure. He just, that's what he does. He just sits there and with all he could do anything. But what does he do? He just smushes beetles. Yeah. So I think we are reading the scene like equally. Like, I think that's what I wrote in my review. And that metaphor stretches across every character in the world. And um, and then just the way it ends. I mean, first of all, the way the music kicks in and and Jamie's uh, reaction and his response. And then you hear, you hear the bells chime in the background and you know it's time for the big fight. It was just perfectly directed. Once again, stellar performance by Peter Dinklage. Unbelievable. Um, and I love is... the the angle, the low angle camera. That's another reason why I sort of went, I agree with Ricky that I would have loved a whole bottle episode of just Dinklage in his cell because every time that they're shooting Tyrion in the cells, they use that narrow space so well. Regardless of who's been directing the episodes, they know that they have limited space. So just direct it on your actors, and they nail it every time. And I still couldn't figure out why he was doing it, and I had to know, because it was horrible that all these beetles should be dying for no reason. Every day around the world, men, women, and children are murdered by the school. Who gives a dusty fuck about a bunch of beetles? I know, I know, but still, it filled me with dread. Piles and piles of them, years and years of them. How many countless living, crawling things smashed and dried out and returned to the dirt? 
In my dreams, I found myself standing on a beach made of beetle husks, stretching as far as the eye could see. I woke up crying, weeping for their shattered little bodies. I tried to stop Olsen once. He was twice your size. He just pushed me aside with a coon, kept on smashing. Every day, until that mule kicked him in the chest and killed him. So what do you think? Why did he do it? What was it all about? I don't know. And and the, what I also really appreciate is the the angle, the combination of the angle and the lighting for for both of them highlights their scars. These are wounded people who have been to hell and back at this point. Both Jamie and Tyrion and it's just it's, it's simple camera work, simple cinematography, and it's so effective. To borrow a quote from the books that they're not going to use at this point, but just handless and noseless, the Lannister boys. <laughs> yeah. Pretty well, much. It's, it's not simple camera work. It's it's clever stri- strategic framing, and I mean that's that's what's great about the cinematography. But the thing that's weird about this episode is like we've been talking about how great the cinematography is, and it is for the majority of the episode, but. I remember I was talking to you, Kate, after the episode ended, and it was like there was a few scenes, a few close-ups, mostly on Daenerys, Grey Worm, and later Sansa, where the characters were framed right to the edge, right to the left uh, edge of the of the screen, like of the frame. And I was like, what is up with the framing? Like, I actually thought I had to adjust my TV set. It was so odd and so distracting. It was just weird. It was like they were they were experimenting. And that is the only sequence or two sequences in the episode that I think are terribly framed. Like, it was to the point where it just did not look natural. And because it didn't look natural, it just stood out like a sore thumb. I was fine with it, but uh, maybe I need to go back and rewatch because I didn't... I didn't actually notice that at all, but maybe I was just so captivated by the script. Yeah, no, the, the, the script and the actors tend to take a lot of the focus. Uh, uh, anyone who listens to my movie podcast knows I'm like so focused on the visuals all the time. I just can't help it. But honestly, there's one scene where Sansa's nose was like almost cut off. It was so weird. Uh, and again, maybe I do have to adjust my TV set, but because the framing was so tight, but. Um, yeah, so I guess we should talk. We should start talking about the climax. Let's do it. Oh God, yes. Let's. T- You're going to fight that. I'm going <laughs> to kill that. <laughs> now, uh, for me, the immediate thing that popped to my mind because the Princess Bride is my favorite movie of all time is, of course, Inigo Montoya, uh, and and that famous fight scene with the repeated uh, with 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 Oberyn's re- repeated mantra. Of uh, of what what the mountain had done to his sister Ricky was that repetition effective? It's directly lifted from the books. Was that repetition effective for you? Uh, actually, I did. I didn't even catch the reference. <laughs> like, I, I apologize. I've seen the movie quite some time ago. It's a great, fantastic film. Um, the entire sequence to me is fantastic. But I mean, again, I'm a non-book reader, and uh, what I loved about this scene is. And I wrote this in a review, like the sequence has the intensity of old Hollywood classics, like those old, amazing sword and sandal films in terms of like the setting, the spectacle, the heroics. Uh, But from a traditional storytelling aspect, like it completely defies expectations because everything is designed and written and staged and framed and lit to make us viewers believe, truly believe that the prince is going to walk away the winner. But he doesn't. And that was why it was one of the most shocking 
moments because like when 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 Ned gets his head chopped off, like that just comes out of nowhere. You know, there isn't a buildup. You know, it's not like you know, is he going to get his head cut off or not? You know, it just happens. But here, there's like a buildup, a steady buildup, and I I mean. I, I just thought that was fantastic. I mean, this is what yeah, made Game I, of Thrones, Game of Thrones. Like they co- they always go against the familiar tropes and cliches, and uh, they constantly surprise us. Yeah, and I do have to ask because I listened to last week's podcast after watching this episode, where Ricky, I believe you said, and I quote, "Yeah, I'm sure they're not going to kill off the Viper because he's just such a tremendously interesting character, and there's so much more they can do with that." What was your reaction when Gregor Clegane cracked open the, the Viper's skull like a beetle? I um, I think I uh, I screamed. I uh, <laughs> I, I took a I took a book and I threw it across the room. I was really <laughs> angry. I was really angry. Seriously, I was so angry. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah. uh, I, I yeah. film my reactions just for the podcast listener. Yeah, I will say. Yeah, from my perspective. I mean, I was also furious. Well, not furious per se, because I've read the books. I knew it was going to happen. But because there's been a lot made this season about how they've been deviating from the books in several ways. Because the whole, I mean, the whole, for example, the whole narrative where Jon Snow goes up to kill the deserters at Craster's Keep, that's not in the books. So there was a part of my brain watching that whole sequence that was thinking, maybe they won't do that. Maybe they will spare the viper maybe he will be allowed to go forward and so the moment where just they where he reaches over and both strangles the viper and the hopes of people like me it 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 was honestly a little bit more affecting because even though i'm a book reader and i knew what was coming there was that fraction of hope that maybe this would be a place where they deviate well, yep. it's one of those things where when you're uh when you're a TV fan or a TV critic or somebody who just follows the stuff very closely, it's like like you said, Ricky, this is such a, a character filled with potential. You could get an entire season out of his uh his you know moving and moves and counter moves against Tywin. There's there's so much potential because he doesn't just want vengeance against the mountain. He's got a, an Arya style list. And there's so much story they could get out of that. And then to have it, like like you said, to take that left turn uh, away from what pretty much any other show would do, it's it's very effective. And uh, just props to uh, to uh, Pedro Pascal to the the stunt team. I mean, it was it was a very effective moment. And we already mentioned it, Leslie already mentioned it, but I really appreciate that this is very much a direct. Like Bron called it. Yes, you could tire him out, you could run him around, you could, you know, take advantage of his size, uh, but one wrong move and you're dead. And that's exactly what happens. But it's it's not a left turn, it's a complete 360 with the middle finger in the air to the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and quick thumbs up to to whoever was Pedro Pascal's stunt double in those scenes, because the sort of spear dancing he did beforehand to present himself to the mountain, which the mountain, I mean, the mountain was manifestly unimpressed and just said, you're some dead man. But I thought that was a fantastic introduction, just how good this guy is and giving further giving the impression that this guy has fought and fucked his way through half of Westeros in his life. Have you guys seen the picture on Tumblr floating around with Pedro Pascal, the actor that plays the mountain where they're on a beach, just kind of chilling and they're all happy yeah, and smiling. With, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, but the actor playing the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That, that picture is 
amazing. It I can't is. actually decide if that's more amazing or the picture that's on Lena Headley's Tumblr that he- uh, Instagram, sorry, that came up uh, per- apparently a couple months ago. She posted a picture of her calling, uh, pretending to clout Pedro Pascal's eyes. Oh yeah, 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 I saw that. <laughs> that. Which I thought was amazing, but of course the point out of spoiler alert. Yeah, do not follow her on Tumblr if you haven't read the books and. If you're the kind of person who's gonna like overanalyze stuff like that, then... oh my god, that yeah, yeah. Good. There's one. I'm, I'm not okay. We'll say it. There's one there. we're excited about for later. Oh in- yes, yes. But we'll Sorry. leave it there. Okay. Uh, any, any other final thoughts on this fight? I mean, we haven't. We've talked about the fight, but one of the fa- my favorite things about this is the way that they do keep cutting to the various Lannister children's reactions. So you have this sort of anticipation and excitement from from both Tyrion and also Jamie counteracted with, with Cersei, uh, you know, just her, her frustration or anger. Oh <laughs> the whole thing was played so well in terms of just the reactions to the fight because they – credit to Alex Graves, who kept cutting back and forth. It would be very tempting to spend the whole thing just watching the Mountain and the Viper spar with their different fighting styles. But you have everything. You have just Tywin sitting there just sort of clutching with a barely contained patience. Jamie legitimately wanting uh, the, the Mountain to go down. Cersei uninscrutable, except for a mild annoyance. And then Tyrion's also that like his unexpected joy in the moment when the mountain goes down and then his face just going slack when Gregor reaches up and rips and rips the viper's eyes out. I mean, it's a far more muted reaction than Alaria who's screaming her face off, but it, they, they, they paired it so beautifully. And then to cut to that quiet smirk of Cersei's at the very end of it. That's just the nail in the coffin right there. Well, any, any final words for, for Oberyn? I think he's one of the, the most effective introduced recently introduced characters on the show of the, of those characters who have been introduced since after the pilot, after, you know, the first few episodes, I, I really think he's made the biggest impact in the shortest amount of time. And I'm really going to miss him. You know, I, I do think that they did an amazing job fleshing out the character, like the Prince of Dorne in such a short period of time. And I mean, it's an abrupt ending, but I think it's also fitting that he goes down swinging in search of justice. I mean, he's a fighter. And uh, I, I agree with you, uh, Laz. Like, I think the, the, the sequence is pitch perfect from the opening like his entrance into the arena to the fight choreography intercut with the reactions of the spectators because when you get the reaction of Tyrion like it becomes clear to Tyrion very very quickly into the fight that the prince is not fighting for Tyrion Lannister he's instead fighting the trial by combat of the mountain and so like the whole sequence I mean this is filmmaking at its best you know and it's it's it, this is an action set piece, but it's also beautiful to look at. It's visually astonishing and it's somewhat poetic, and it's it brings script performance and and like even the violence that we come to expect from Game of Thrones and TV shows on HBO to a high standard. And I mean, this is honestly this season is unbelievable. This is by far the best season. Even if the next two episodes are awful, which I I know they won't be, this is by far the best season in my in my opinion. 
No, it, no, it's been a fantastic. It, I will entirely agree with you on that. It's been a fantastic season. Uh, regarding Oberyn Martell, I think honestly, what I'm more impressed by, I mean, I've been impressed by everything Pedro Pascal did in making the Viper a character who we genuinely mourn him now that he's gone. But what I'm the most impressed by what he did was sort of introducing Dorne into the show. I mean, we obviously knew something of Dorne in the past because that's where uh, Marcella, Cersei's daughter, has been sort of sent off to marry one of their one of their heirs. But he sort of he brought into Westeros just this air of a different continent, a place where bastards don't have to, where bastards bear the name of sand proudly, where there's a genuinely looser feel, a more uh, actual lust for life, as opposed to the grimness of your, your Starks, your Boltons, your Baratheons. And I thought he brought that into this world very well. And one of my keen hopes going forward is that he's not going to be the last we see of Dorne proper, because I mean, A, Dorne seems like a, farm, a very interesting place, and B, you can't imagine that the way he felt about the Lannisters was limited to only him. Like, there have to be people back home who share his descent, and there have to be people back home who are going to be even more pissed that even though he got himself into this mess, their beloved prince has been killed. And so I'm in, really, really hopeful we're going to get a lot more of Dorne going forward. In the books, are there flashbacks or, like, scenes that happen, or is there a book that's, like, a prequel, like, I'm just hoping we get to see these characters again. Please tell me yes. Um, no, but we there's lots of stories being told about. We don't get uh, or memories from the characters who were alive at the time. We don't we don't just get like flashbacks in the tra traditional sense. So, so we're never going to see the prince again, or I don't know. Yeah, Ned pretty much. Not. Well, uh, well. To be fair, we we saw Cal Drogo after he died. So That's my, true. I, 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 I'll be honest. I have my fingers crossed for a good episode where the memory of the Viper is shows up in the background. I feel like this is a show that, especially at this point, could certainly pull off a couple scenes of like head Oberon. Like if we're if we spend some time with Ilaria, I could see her in her grief, sort of talking to him. But that's about it. I, I don't know. Yeah, I could see that if only because I do like Indira Varma a lot, and I always feel bad about how much of a short stick she got on Luther. I would love to. I really do hope that we haven't seen the last of Ilaria Sand, even though I'm not entirely sure how she fits into the narrative of the show going forward. She seems like someone who right now should be getting the fuck out of King's Landing. <laughs> I agree. Well, do we have any predictions? For next week's episode, mostly, you know, Ricky limited to you, but also less any, you know, if you can keep the book spoilers out of it, any any hopes for the next couple of weeks and, uh, you know, what our Neil Marshall directed episode nine might bring us? Oh, it's Neil Marshall? Mm -hmm. I don't even know the title of the episode. I don't want to know. Do not tell me. Oh. I won't tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, if it's Neil Marshall, it means big epic battle scenes. So, well... I guess uh, the wildlings attacking the wall. Okay. Or I mean, that, yeah, that, that, unless unless is that what you are hoping for, or is that what you think will happen, or refresh both? my memory? Uh, Danny sent Daenerys she... sent Dahari and Aharis back to Young Kai to take retake it. Okay, so it could be. How about I guess it's gonna cut back and forth between two giant battles. That's what okay. I'm, that's what I'm hoping to see. 
but yeah, I'm, that, I'm, pre- I'm predicting one battle. Yeah, yeah that, that's my hope as well. I mean, the Reigns of Castamere last season was – that was a halfway cut. I mean, half the episode was the marriage. The other half was a bunch of other stuff in Westeros. But I'm really hoping for a penultimate that emulates the format of Blackwater, which worked so well as an episode – for focusing on that one corner of the world where everything was on that hinge. So whether next week is all the battle at the wall, all the battle at Yunkai, or hell, maybe even some third battle that has come together we haven't even seen, I would love a penultimate episode that, keeping with the traditions, fixates so thoroughly on just one central plot line. And then the finale sort of can mop things up and set a bunch of things in motion for next week. But this episode I thought was just, again, Ricky said so many times, this felt like it could have been a season finale. There were so many things set in motion here that I want to see more of, but I would be perfectly happy the way they've left them right now. Okay, let's sit on those for a year and see what happens next. Uh-huh. Man. <laughs> Who are the characters we didn't see this week that you want to see either next week or make sure we see them at least once more before well, the end of the finale? Pod- Podrick and Brienne. Podrick and Brienne. It's always Podrick and Brienne. <laughs> <laughs> who, my, who my girlfriend amusingly pointed out that those two characters would be best if they had their own theme song set to Pinky and the Brain. Oh my god, that's awesome. They're Podrick and Brienne. <laughs> Podrick and Brienne. Internet, make that happen. Yes, admit, write, write those lyrics, Internet. Write those lyrics. <laughs> hmm. Now you guys are, I'm tempted to look at the title of the episode, but I, I think I shouldn't. Um, Don't do it. Characters I want to see. Um, yeah, Pod, Brienne, of course, uh, Bran Stark and Jojen and um, yeah, yeah, Jon Snow. Say, it's like, yeah, quick insertion. I would like to see Bran Stark again. And if only because it's been way too long since we've seen him, we need a check-in at least yeah. before the season ends to remind Every, us what's going on. Everybody and anybody but Stannis. Uh, oh, I like Stannis. Oh, I do not need to see Stannis in the penultimate episode. Like, any other episode, but not the penultimate. Okay, okay. well, to be fair, I would be okay not seeing Stannis, but I would like to see Davos. I like Davos a lot. Oh, yeah, Davos is pretty cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, let, let, let's just say there's a, there's a lot of ground they can still cover in these next two episodes. And so far, while I'm hoping for a penultimate that's very focused, I they have not given me any reason to think that they're going to cheat us on any stories in the last two episodes. There's no way they're bringing Neil Marshall in for an episode that isn't going to be, that isn't going to revolve around a huge epic battle. I mean, if anybody's watched his movies, I mean, that's exactly why they're bringing in a director like Neil Marshall. So we're going to get an episode like Blackwater guaranteed. Well, God, God bless them in that regard. Or that yeah, the old gods and the new. Well, uh, I cannot confirm nor deny, uh, I, yeah, we, anybody, you know, and again, like I keep saying, and I will say it next week and I'll say it the week after, keep in mind everything that's happened this season and everything that happened last season are all in the same book. So so this, they have split book three into basically into these two seasons. They have split the books, but they have cherry picked from the from the book from book four and five. I mean, I haven't read book five, but I know enough about book five to know they have cherry picked some stuff. And I will just give huge credit to Benioff and Weiss for being able to keep the story grounded in the books and also find ways to tell their own story. Just and, thumbs up to them on that regard. And which is your favorite book? Well, of course, book three. Everybody's favorite is book three. <laughs> 
book three. It's got to be book three. Though I do admit I have a soft spot for book one, if only because it just so wonderfully establishes this world. That's very true. But again, book three has the red wedding, the purple wedding, the trial, this fight, and the stuff that's coming next in like 300 pages. Oh, Mike. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I honestly do wish we had a book podcast because, Kate, I would love to just sit with you for an hour and just clap giddily about what's coming next <laughs> yeah it's 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 just it's crazy to think about you know so yeah. if, if you do if you do decide ricky to to read the the it earlier books it can't be more crazy like unless the dragon swoops in and save Tyrion, bites out cersei's head like i mean what can they possibly do uh i'm just gonna giggle knowingly right now well and and you know keep in mind this is still a seven or maybe eight book series there's don't expect you know any of the long like end end game kind of stuff to happen you know we don't want to overhype here but yeah there's there's still stuff uh less yes even considering the books aside this has been a gangbusters season of television some terrific stuff and i have no doubt the ne- the last two episodes regardless of how much they pull from the books are going to be amazing so and you you uh last you mentioned you wanted to talk briefly about that development with uh, the books well, I mean, it's it's a lot of it is. I mean, you have to take what they said with a grain of salt because that's not George R. R. Martin saying that. That's his editor, and I don't. There, there's so much talk about whether about the concerns about what happens when the sh- if the show manages to get past him. I mean, even if the, I mean, th- thinking even if they cover everything in book four next season, there's still two seasons to work with. I don't know it, there's a definite concern about how whatever the show's plan is meshing up against with what George R. R. Martin's plan is. But considering that George R. R. Martin is has given such blessing to this project, and he's apparently told he's written episodes of this show, and he's told Benioff and Weiss at least the loose structure of how the show's supposed to end. I'm not really concerned about that affecting the show, other than to say, well. If he's writing more books, that might mean we'll get more seasons, and that's not a bad thing by any definition. Ricky, any thoughts? Well, I, I don't want to look too far into the future. <laughs> I just want to concentrate on season. Like while you guys are talking, I'm, I'm I can't help but think what's going to happen next week. So, oh my, I'm, fair enough. I'm focused on this season. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, my heart races, and like when I watch these episodes, it's heartbreaking when I see a man's head squashed like a coconut, like you know, especially when yeah. it's the prince. I know, and again, that that's sort of that's an interesting thing about reading the book, reading the books, and comparing to this. There's enough deviations that there are still moments of interest where you look and say, "Oh, they did that instead," and. Like I said, I knew exactly what was going to happen at the end of that fight, but my heart was in my throat for the entire outcome of that fight, even knowing who was going to come out on top. Yeah, they've done a fantastic job of of deviating here and there and of of shifting, you know, the shadings of certain characters to make their their choices more meaningful or more interesting and I think this week sounds is a perfect example and uh yeah, I, if if they get ahead, I'm not worried if they get ahead of the books because the books will still exist, the show will still exist, and they've shown that they can do a wonderful job when they're lifting directly from the books and when they're creating completely original content. Yeah, so exactly. I'm, I'm not concerned. I mean, you know, screw it. Just have, 
that's great. Just have Arya and the Hound turn around, run into Podrick and Brienne, and the four of them just go around Westeros having merry Scooby-Doo style adventures. Yeah, totally. I I need a little laughter. <laughs> you know I mean, I, I, if it was just, if it was the four of them, I mean, plus Sir Jorah Mormont because he's not doing anything right now. I would watch the hell out of the show if it was just those five running around having adventures. You know what's amazing about this season is like every year, Kate and I and a few of our TV editors, we have to choose like our favorite episode of each TV show, right? Which sometimes is kind of hard when you watch a show like Hannibal and they're all so good and, you know, on par, like they're almost oh, all Hannibal's really good. So good. And then, you, you know, like the Americans. And the thing about season three, uh, four of Game of Thrones is that I don't know what I would choose as my favorite episode. I think I would have to watch it again because they're all so good and uh yeah, I, I am eagerly looking forward to re-watching the entire season over the summer yeah i mean because like you know you think season three and people go like the red wedding or even the climb was fantastic but most people go with the red wedding and then there's blackwater and this season it's not an easy pick so i'm excited for the next two episodes and uh, i can't wait for next week yep well i think that that's probably a good place to leave it uh let's thank you again for coming back on the podcast again to talk about this episode <laughs> uh, it's it's always a pleasure kate always a pleasure where can our listeners find you and your work online uh you can find me online at twitter at at less is more 909 uh, my writing appears at the av club i'm currently reviewing the last four episodes of enlisted and also if you want to find me in person and you happen to be down in austin texas this weekend i'll be at the austin television festival just uh look for the guy with the straw hat and the beard and the big smile and feel free to approach me i'm very approachable <laughs> well again thank you Les, so much for coming on uh thank you everyone for listening next week we'll be talking about episode nine of season four uh ricky plug your ears because i'm going to say the title here oh wait hold on okay spoiler warning if you don't want to hear the title three seconds starting now the watchers on the wall Directed by Neil Marshall, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Thank you all for listening.
settle down until the Icarus in your blood and your blood drums. I said it.